0: Colossians, chapter 2, verse 20, through chapter 3, verse 4. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, everyone wants to be happy. We want to know the secret of fulfillment, fullness, happiness, purpose. And while I have no understanding of economics whatsoever, I do believe that when uh, the commercials come on, whatever they're emphasizing is what they think right now is going to sell best. So, back in sort of the economic depression 2008 and those years around there, the trucks that were being sold, these companies, Ford, Chevy, all of them were saying things like most economical, you know, fuel economy. They were, they were really talking about that and how it would last the longest. And more recently now, they're talking about, you know, towing capacity or cabin control, you know, all sorts of just the, the amenities side. You know, I don't, like I say, I don't really understand the economy, but I do believe that if you just look at that and see what they're trying to sell and how they're trying to sell it, they're saying, well, right now what you need to be fulfilled and happy when the economy is down is something that will help you, you know, keep your budget. But now, now that you have money, you better spend it. You know, that's, that's the plan. Not so. advertising seems to work. Let me tell you the secret. Here's the thing, and I have it, so you should buy it. Well, that was the problem, shall we say, in the Colossian church. Certain people were coming in and saying, well, you've heard the gospel, but let me tell you the real secret. You should, you should have this thing. You should have this thing, and you'll be fulfilled. Paul had not planted the Colossian church himself. The city of Colossae was not one of the major cities in his missionary journey. He stuck to the highways and the big cities, mostly. You could say that, you know, he he kept to the interstate, and Colossians, the Colossians, kind of lived off the beaten path. But someone who did hear Paul preach in those big cities, Epaphras, was mentioned at the beginning of this letter and in the letter to the Philippians, he heard the gospel, he believed, and he brought it back to Colossae. So Paul had not seen these folks face to face, but he had heard about the church and evidently about the problems that they faced, these teachers coming in among them who were adding to the gospel. So Epaphras, having brought the gospel from Paul to Colossae, has returned to Paul for help confronting these new teachers and their new ideas. And we don't know exactly what their ideas were, but we do get a backdrop to this letter where Paul kind of says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And from that we can see, well, that's what they were talking about. So after a chapter of describing the glorious Christ, he makes his first comment directed at these false teachers. Chapter 2, verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And verses 16 and 18. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So these teachers were promoting some mix of Judaism and the local cults as a real-deal super-religion. They were taking a little bit of the God of the Hebrews, and a little bit of the gods of the Greeks, and maybe even a pinch of the secret society mystery cults, too. They wanted to cover all the angles. You know, if Zeus can help us over here, and maybe Osiris over here, and Jesus can fill in in the middle. Their message was something like, yeah, Jesus is great. I mean, he, he's, he's wonderful as far as, as, far as he goes. But now that you're in Colossae, you know, you, you're, you're, you're not in Israel anymore. You need some of these gods, too, to help you out. And they'll say things like, you Colossian Christians, you got really excited when, uh, when, when you were told about Jesus. But wait, there's more. Here's the secret. Here's how you live a life full of blessing. And Paul characterizes the, their message as, submit to regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In his allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan tells the story of a man as he walks through this earthly life, leaving his home in the city of destruction and setting out to go to the heavenly city. Now it's an allegory, so all the characters and places are named for exactly who they are. So the main character is named Christian, because that is who he is. And he reads in a book that his home city would soon be destroyed in judgment. And he was very terrified, but he didn't know at all what to do. Until a man named Evangelist came, and true to his name, told him the gospel. And Evangelist told Christian to go his way and go out of his home country, and enter through the narrow gate on a narrow way, and there he would find such a sight as would remove this burden of sin off of his back and would lead him into the heavenly country. But on his way there, Christian meets another man named Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who questions him about his journey. says, Now, why do you want to go on that way? That way is difficult, it's fraught with trials, the way is long, and you'll meet endless perils there. And Christian says, well, I don't know any other way. Worldly wise man says, no, I I can help you out. I, I know where you can go. He says to him, in that village over there called Morality lives a gentleman named Legality, a very judicious and honorable man, who has the skill to help rid men of their burdens, such as yours. And his handsome young son, Civility, can help you as well. And you may send for your wife and children to join you in this village, where there are houses available at reasonable rates. Everything you need for a happy life will be provided there, and you will live among honest neighbors. Go past that hill, and the first house you come to is his. So Christian turned aside from the way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But when he came close to the hill, it seemed so high and hung so far over the path, it seemed like it would crush him. And his burden on his back now seemed heavier than it ever had. And there were flashes of fire coming out from the hill that made Christian afraid he should be burned. And he began sweating and quaking with fear. And as Christian is frozen there in fear, Evangelist happens upon his path again and sets him right. Evangelist says, you were sent to legality, the son of the bondwoman, who is now in bondage with her children. This is a mystery, this Mount Sinai, which you feared would fall on your head. Now, if she and her children are themselves in bondage, how can you expect them to free you? Legality, therefore, is not able to set you free, nor has anyone ever been relieved from his burden by legality. You cannot be justified by works of the law, for the law cannot release any man from his burden. Therefore, Mr. Worldly Wise Man is an alien, and Mr. Legality is a cheat and his son's civility is nothing but a hypocrite and cannot help you. Believe me, what you have heard from these stupid men is nothing but a design to deceive you by turning you out of the way I had sent you. This is the message of Mr. Worldly Wiseman, and it's exactly the message that Paul is arguing against, and exactly the message that we would do well to guard ourselves from. The wisdom of the world is telling us Submit to regulations, morality, legality, civility. Paul admits that it appears, but only it appears, wise to promote self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But, he says, none of that will stop you from sinning. But what does that look like for us? Because we aren't going on and on, keeping about the Sabbaths and other festivals, and we certainly aren't insisting on severe self-denial or worship of angels. Mr. Worldly Wiseman has changed his clothes. He's put on a new suit, but the man is the same. I say, do we promote self-made religion here in North Dakota? And I say, absolutely. Not that there's a new cult, new idea popping up every day, but the religion of the Midwest, of North Dakota, is absolutely that of the self made man, the self made woman. Work hard, be kind, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is actually a joke, but we use it like a mantra. I mean, next time something is too high for you to reach, just bend down, grab your foot, and lift. You're not going anywhere. Pull yourself up from your bootstraps. But we love our work hard, be kind mantra. And it sounds just like civility can help you as well. You may send for your wife and children to join you in the village, where there are houses available at reasonable rates. Everything you need for a happy life will be provided there, and you will live among honest neighbors. Isn't that life goals? Be civil. Don't bug anybody. Leave them alone. Be left alone. Work hard. Have a happy life in a little town. Take care of your family. They'll be happy too. Everything you need is here. And some of you live in that town. And what you don't see is that The mountain that hangs above you and gives you nice shade in the summer is actually Sinai coming to crush you. Because judgment is coming. That's the message of Mount Sinai. Judgment is coming. The wrath of God is coming. And if you don't feel it now, you will when you see Jesus judging the living and the dead. His eyes like flames of fire. it will be unbearable because you will feel the weight of your sin, which feels so light now. But when it is exposed, it will crush you to your knees. Your sin will crush you until your face is in the dirt, and then the weight of your sin will crush you and sink you down to hell. And none of the hard-working and the good neighborliness and the conservative voting and the giving your kids more opportunities than you had or the tithing or saving sex until marriage or any other kind of good deed will help you on that day. Because your good deeds, what little they are, will actually rise up against you in judgment. Because what they'll say is, look, look, he knew he should be doing good, but he didn't always. She knew this was the right thing to do, but she did other stuff too. Mr. Worldly Wise Man is an alien, and Mr. Legality is a cheat, and his son's civility is nothing but a hypocrite and cannot help you. Believe me, what you have heard from these stupid men is nothing but a design to deceive you by turning you out of the way. And what is the way? Well, this is the way, right? Mandalorians. Jesus Christ proclaimed the only truth that will aid you on doomsday. Jesus is the way. This real man who walked the earth, rejected the sins that you have chosen, and accepted the punishment that you cannot bear. You cannot bear God's justice on you. These are the words of Jesus about that. He says, where the fire is not quenched and where their worm never dies, fire will burn you up forever and there will be a worm appointed just for you to chew at your flesh forever. And in that place, that saying that so many chuckle at now will be absolutely true. There is no rest for the wicked. And after a thousand thousand days are passed, you will be no closer to the end than when you began. And while morality and civility are merely cheats, Jesus is true. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian does get away from the fiery mountain of the law that would crush him. It says, He ran up until he came into a hill, and upon that hill stood a cross and at the bottom was a sepulchre, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden was loosed from his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble and continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the sepulchre where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Christ has taken your burden of sin at the cross, and he carried it all the way to the tomb. And when he rose up out of it, he left your sin there. And now perhaps you're sitting there in the pew thinking, well, I've heard all of this before. Good. (laughs) It's the gospel. I would hope you've heard it before. Maybe you're saying, well, I know this, but what am I supposed to do now? I know my ABCs, I know the gospel, but what about the rest of it? Friends, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. It's the whole of it. Now, Paul had just said to the Colossians that while those regulations and self-made religious practices appear wise, they cannot stop the indulgence of the flesh. Rules can't keep you from sinning. Rules cannot keep you from sinning. And I say it again because I want the person with the thickest skull to hear it. And that's me. That's who I'm referring to. In case you were wondering. I love rules. They just seem so wonderful. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Everything in a nice little spot. Everything tied up with a bow. Wonderful. But rules never stopped one person from sinning. They're powerless to do so. Because given the choice between the dry rice cracker of rules and the decadent, desirable chocolate cake that sin is promising you, some of your mouths just watered when I said chocolate cake, so you know what I'm talking about. Which are you going to choose? Now, even though we know that sin promises what it can't deliver, it doesn't stop us. It doesn't help us resist. Because no matter how many times sin pulls the wool over our eyes and the rug out from under our feet, we will still come back to it. Because it is so good at painting false promises. So what hope do we have? Because we can be the ones painting it. And yet, we still fall for it. You know the cake is dry and will make you throw up later, but boy, oh boy, doesn't it look good? Aren't we just a helpless sort? Addicted to what we know is killing us and unable to break free. Do you feel this way? Do you think that freedom from sin and a holy life is only for super-Christians? Do you have that one sin that always trips you up and you think, well, I guess I'll just have to live with this until I get to heaven? Well, I'm here to tell you, just like the good advertisers, the secret, I've got it right here. I'm here to tell you the secret to holy living, to joyful service, bringing great glory to God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Were you hoping I would give you some tip or trick? It seems like we go to the Bible to find out what we need to do, and then we want to go somewhere else to find out how to do it. And I know, this sounds crazy. I argue with Paul. I say, okay, Paul, that's great. You know, you are really, you're, you're holy, you're great, you, you you know your Bible, so, of course, you can just get rid of sin by just thinking about Christ. But but I sin's got its hooks in me. I need something stronger. But, for sake of argument here, let's assume that the guy who went on a 180 from killing Christians to preaching the gospel knows a little bit more about the life-transforming effects of the gospel than I do, than we do. So just as an exercise, let's put aside all the self-help advice that we have and let the Apostle teach us how to change our lives. If, then, you have been raised with Christ, have you? And this isn't a special step, an extra on the Christian life. It is the Christian life. This is how Paul talks about all Christians. So are you a Christian? Have you thrown your sins away and trusted Christ for your salvation? Then you have been raised with Christ. Did you know that about yourself? You've been raised with Christ. Not only did your sins go to the cross with Jesus and down into the grave with Jesus, but you were there. And although your sins stayed in the grave, when Jesus rose, you rose. Seek the things that are above and set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. So then am I trying to say, well, okay, we need to spend the next three hours just looking up at the clouds and contemplating angels and their holy robes and their holy harps? No. Because Paul is going to tell us right now what is above. He said, seek what's above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. How should we think about Christ? And that is a difficult question, because you will not find a broader subject. But let's start with the next couple verses. For you have died, and that makes sense, because, well, if we're raised, it makes sense that we were dead before that, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So where is it that you live? Now, just in the last month, I moved from Valley City to Jamestown. And so in one sense, it's right to say that I now live in Jamestown. And I suppose that most of you would say something the same. You live in Jamestown, or you live on a farm just outside of Jamestown. But it's not the most accurate way of saying it. Because, dear believer, you live in heaven. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Not only did you go down into the grave with Christ and rise up from the grave with Christ, you were brought up to the throne of heaven in Christ. He is there and you are there in him. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Not only is our life hidden with Christ, Christ is your life, and he is your glory. Now, how in the world are we meant to understand this? Something so wonderful is that. Well, if we pay close attention to Paul and even to the very words he chooses to use, he'll show us how to understand this truth. Paul never calls believers Christians. He doesn't use that word. When Paul describes believers, what he more often than any other way how he describes us, he calls us those who are in Christ. Not just people who believe in Christ, But people who really are in Christ, so joined and united with him that what can be said of him can be said of us. So, when the burden of your sins weighs on you, remember that you were in Christ when he died on that rugged cross when sickness, pain, and death afflict you, remember that you were in Christ when he rose from the grave. When sin tempts you, when you long for that poisonous, sweet lie of its embrace, remember that you right now are in Christ, sitting at the right hand of God, and that when Christ, who is your life, not oh, gardening is her life, or, oh, football is his life. If he didn't have football, I don't know what he'd do with himself. No, Christ, who is your life, when he appears, you also will appear with him in glory because you are in him. And you know that in heaven, there's no danger of sin's trifles tempting you because the glorious treasuries of heaven are all there. Well, your life already is there. A saint of a bygone era has written of Jesus, Since he looked upon me, my heart is not my own. He hath run away to heaven with it. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let his loveliness capture you. Let his kindness bind you and be imprisoned in his grace. Just like we sang. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Lord, let thy goodness, like a fetter, like like chains, bind my wandering heart to you. So is what I'm saying, then, that just as Christians, it doesn't matter how we live, as long as we continue to look to Jesus for our salvation? And the answer is absolutely no. Because, as Paul goes on to say, verses 8 and 9, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And not just to put off sin, but in verse 12 he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. There is a putting off and a putting on. Because in Christ, you have new clothes to wear. But there is a grave danger that you face in hearing this, because you're going to be tempted, as every human has been since Adam, to say, okay, all right, here's, here's a list of things to do. I can manage that. I'll, I'll redouble my efforts. I'll try even harder. I'll get better at this. I'll, I'll set aside time to do this, this, this. I will do more better. And you will only succeed in bringing yourself further and further into condemnation because you can't get to heaven by climbing Mount Sinai. It doesn't reach. The flames are going to come up out of the mountain and consume you. But there is one mountain that does reach up to heaven, Mount Zion. And upon it, the hill Calvary. And coming up out of that hill, an old rugged cross on which our Jesus died. And in him, so did we. There is no way to heaven. And there is no way to living a holy life. Except in Christ.